Good morning. So good to be with you as we've gathered to worship our Lord and our Savior and Jesus Christ. Today we're turning in our Bibles to Psalm 91. And as you're turning there to help us understand better how all things fit together as you're exploring the scriptures, uh, the Psalms are divided into five books. And what fascinates us is that once again, and this is the fourth time, this is the fourth book that we're exploring together, each of these books have what I will call dual doors, double doors by which you are able to enter into the book. For example, book one has Psalms one and two as the double doors by which you enter. When you get to book two, there's a set of double doors as well. Get to book three, double doors as well. We list them all in your insert this morning. And so now what we're doing is we are coupling, in essence, last week's study of Psalm 90 with this week's study in Psalm 91. And again, what you will now find is that our entranceway into book four involves dual doors, double doors, by which now we make our way into a better understanding of how book four relates to your life, my life as well. What I'd like to do is to get some traction with you this morning. So I'm going to begin reading with verse one, and I'm going to take it down to verse 10. And there we're going to see how God wants to speak to you and me, noticing, furthermore, that there is no listed author like David or Moses at the superscription. This is anonymous. But when you see the connection between Psalm 90 and Psalm 91, and the dual emphasis upon the idea of dwelling in God, you can see why these two fit together so naturally. So beginning in verse 1, he who dwells, there you have it again, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For I will deliver you from the snare of the fowler from the deadly pestilence, will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. 
So some have argued that uh, this looks a lot like Moses continuing what he wrote in Psalm 90 for you and for me. Others might argue that there's a lot of similarities here to David, particularly the thousand, ten thousand idea. Uh, regardless, this is God speaking and inspiring the word, and now we want to understand how it relates to your life and my life as we together now look to our Lord in prayer. And so, Father, no matter what the circumstances have been in these past days, no matter what the challenges we have been confronted with, there have been highs, there have been lows. We also know, Father, we've had our share of group dynamics, wide range of experience of those closer to and those a little further removed from in the way in which not only we impact their lives, but they impact ours. We need a constant in the midst of the variables. And that's why in our worship we come before you, the Alpha and the Omega. We allow for you to speak to us because we know that you are the constant we need. You're the foundation upon which we stand. You are the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And we give you and you alone all the praise. Now, Father, you know the needs of the hearts, those present in these services, those that are watching online, maybe in the immediate context, maybe in the evening or the days to come. Father, I pray you'll take the sum total of what is being offered here and apply it, the timeless being offered in a way that's timely, so that the heart is being reshaped by your will not by ours. So, Father, as always, these moments together are significant when we dive into the depths of your word. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. The family was meditating on Psalm 91, and then it happened. It was February 28th, 1944. Casper Tenboom, his daughters and grandson were herded into the gymnasium in Germany. Now they've been quietly going about their business hours before, but one thing that stood out as Mr. Tenboom was applying truth to life was that God was the shelter, he was the refuge, he was the most high. This is what allowed them to offer shelter, you see, the entire family to Jews who were seeking to flee from the grasp of the Nazi forces. But then there was this knock on the door. When the grandson Peter answered, they claimed that they were friends of the grandfather. But Peter, 
Peter was suspicious, and rightly so, and told them that he could not, they could not see his grandfather. But then in the next moment, a gun was pointed in his face, and terror gripped him as the guards then entered into the house, rounded up the family. The crime was serious. In the estimation of the Nazi regime, the Ten Booms had been hiding Jews. Now, Psalm 91 gives assurance. No harm will befall you, for he will command his angels concerning you. But you see, for this grandson who had to meet these gods at the door, he felt disillusioned and confused. How does God's word relate to times like these? Later, he would reflect on the incident. Quote, but tragedy had struck. Where was the host of angels? Had God forgotten us? But then you and I are told that Peter glanced over at his grandfather sitting in a corner. He tells us that there was this extraordinary expression of peace on his pale face, a subtle conviction that there was faith residing in that heart, even if he couldn't understand why life had offered such a, a U-turn, he realized that his grandfather was protected, that God had built a fence around him he says, suddenly I knew the everlasting arms are around all of us. God does not make mistakes. He's at the controls, whether present or now in his presence. We're told that Casper Tenboom died in a prison hospital within weeks of that incident. And the others, except for Corey and Betsy, were released soon after. But even in prison, Psalm 91 became their source of comfort. And as Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy languished in a, in a prison death camp, they were comforted, the biographer tells us, by their certainty that they were that they were resting in, quote, the shadow of the Almighty, unquote. Are you? What I want to do with you this morning is to examine Psalm 91. And no matter what we're going through right now on our own life in our own life situations. I want to draw out four significant assurances that are found in these verses that relate directly to where you and I are at at this moment in time. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 4. We're going to put it like this. That as you and I, as we find our dwelling in our sovereign God, 
I want to begin by noting with you here the various names describing our God, because packed in the opening verses are four different names used to reveal certain attributes of our God. Check them out. Starting with verse 1, you and I are told, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, to get a start, to build some traction, I want you to camp on that word dwells. It's from the Hebrew word, shav, and it means to remain, to sit, to abide with a sense of permanence. In other words, what God wants you and me to do now, in the midst of the turmoil and the turbulence of life, is to be able to find that same sense of peace that Mr. Tenboom was able to experience in the presence of the Nazis because he knew in reality he was in the presence of the sovereign God. Are you dwelling there? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High And there now is the first of the four names that we want to be able to extract from these opening verses. Because the phrase, the Most High, comes from the Hebrew word Elyon. Elyon. It was a word used to describe God in relationship to Abram in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 through 20. Abram would find himself on a journey, a journey of faith. And what he needed throughout that life journey was a sense of Elion, the sense by which he knew that the Most High was dealing with things at the lower level of life. And so now, just as Abram is on a life journey, so are you, so am I. And what we will find at times is that what we are needing in the storms of life, shelter. Well-built shelter. Now notice how this shelter is constructed. He who dwells carries with a sense of permanence here. Residence here. You've taken residence in God. He who dwells in the shelter, not outside of the shelter. Is that where you're at? Of the most high. Everything else you encounter in life is in miniature. There is only one most high. All other ceilings are at lower levels. Notice what more that he says here will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What grips your heart when you read that? When I arrived at 
Wheaton College for my freshman year. The book I had in hand was a book entitled Shadow of the Almighty, written by Elizabeth Elliot, taking extracts, stories from the journals of her uh, deceased husband, Jim Elliot. She put together a, a bestseller. Jim Elliot was one of five missionaries that lost their lives intending to share the gospel with the, with the Alka Indians in Latin America. Elizabeth Elliot was meant to be present when that occurred, but she stayed behind to care for her daughter, Valerie, who eventually became a classmate of mine in college. Look Magazine sees the story. It had a major picture front cover of the deceased five. As I comb through the, the book itself, a quote that stands out is this. Jim Elliot would write, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. Nor is surrender to the will of God per se adequate to fullness of power in Christ. Maturity is the accomplishment of years. And I can only surrender to the will of God as I know what that will is, unquote. Astounding words from a 20-something-year-old who is processing life at the earlier stages of life. Those that subscribe to World Magazine ponder a recent story in which Valerie is being interviewed and asked to go into some greater detail regarding her mother and her deceased father's life story. Now her mom is in the presence of the Lord as, as well. But the book that stood out and the one that I carried with me in my freshman year, just one, was entitled Shadow of the Almighty. What I want you to see here, then, is that we've been introduced not only to one name, Elian, the Most High, but now a second name, the Almighty, the Hebrew word Shaddai. You will be finding that word again and again when you, when you go through Genesis in particular, such as in 17.1. And again, as Moses would be inspired to pen the thoughts that we find in Genesis. Again, the story, the account of Abram and his relationship to God. Who not only will now know him as the one who is the most high, sheltering him. But furthermore, he's the almighty. What you and I then need to be able to do then is to look at everything around us that seems to have such power, such influence, where the power is such that life seems out of control. And then you wonder, where can I 
get a grip on life. What you need to do is to get a grip on Shaddai, the all-powerful one who ministers to you, ministers to me at our points of need and, and brings glory to his name. He's the shelter for storm victims. He's the one who calls people to abide. The Hebrew word loon carries with the idea to lodge, to stay put. We're going to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You're walking with me down a street on a sunny day. And we notice off to the side that there is a, a parent that is carrying a child in the arms. You notice the shadow. It's the shadow of the parent. And as the parent holds the child in the arms, the shadow overtakes, overwhelms the child. The child is protected in the arms of the one who casts the shadow. But bear this in mind. You need light to produce shadows. Shadows are not produced in the darkness of the days. No. Shadows are produced in the midst of the light of our days. Now, what God is doing at this point is this. When you abide in him, when you establish residence in him, having put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you find yourself abiding in him, and he becomes, as we said last week, your zip code. Your eternal zip code. And while we have many zip codes over the course of our years, there is a lasting zip code that comes to mind when you abide in him, you dwell in him. So now he is your most high. That stands out to you. It stands out to me here at this point. Elion. He is your Shaddai, the Almighty. But now you're up to verse 2, and the word I there is the emphatic. It's as if the psalmist now says, I want to offer you my testimony. I will say to the Lord, and now there is the third of the four Names for the sovereign one, Lord. Hebrew word, Yahweh. Carries with it the idea of the relational, covenantal name of God. And as it connects him to his people. And so it's not enough to know something about God. It's critically important to know God. And knowing God involves being in relationship to him where all of a sudden these names take on added significance. Why, he's my most high and there's where my shelter is found. Yeah, I am seeking shelter. I'm a storm victim in life. Furthermore, not only the shelter, but the shadow. 
He offers a shadow in the midst of the intense heat of the days. So then I say to the Lord, you have this relational, conversational connectedness with the Sovereign One to be able to call him your Lord, your Yahweh, you see. My refuge. My fortress. My God. Now what just stood out in what I just read? The use of the word my. In other words, it's just not some religious guy writing. This is a dynamic relational perspective being offered. I will say to the Lord, my refuge. He does not say to the Lord, the refuge. So now, Yahweh, my refuge, my fortress, and now your fourth name, my God. The Hebrew word carries with the idea of Elohim. It was the word used for God as he created the world. Creating something out of nothing. And you know it. If he can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad. And this is what he has to say to storm victims. This is what he has to say for people who are looking for the shadow of the Almighty. But he wants you to say it to him. It's not just him saying it to us. And that's why in verse 2, the psalmist now is saying this to Yahweh, to the Lord. My refuge, my fortress, my God, Elohim. And mark it. In whom I trust. It doesn't merely say I trust him. No, do you see that sense here by which he is positioned in? Now tie it together. He who dwells in the shelter will abide in the shadow. It ends with in whom I trust. Did you see the multiple usage of the word I-N? In? All this then connects you to the one who wants to be your shelter if you find yourself a storm victim in the difficulties of life. But I want to say this. These words are for dwellers only. This assurance is not for those who are not dwelling in the Lord. These are for those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, abide in the shadow of the Almighty. They're the ones that can then offer the testimony. I say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, and then another in, in whom I trust. And now you make sense out of verses 1 and 2. Going back to a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. News report highlighted a rescue device used on the oil rigs. You know the story. In case of fire, or in this case hurricane, the rig workers would scramble into this bullet-shaped bus, strap themselves into their seats, 
And then when the entry port is shut, well, the vehicle then is released down a chute, protected away from, projected away from the rig. Well, the seat belts protect the occupants from the impact of the water. And then the capsule, it bobs in the sea, just bobs in the sea until, until rescuers come to pick it up. And you have to trust that capsule. You are in it. God then becomes your capsule. You are in him if you put faith and trust in Jesus. So now, if verses 1 and 2 describe who God is with the fourfold usage of names... Verses 3 and 4 describe what God does. Never try to get ahead of yourself and go quick to what God does without starting with who God is. So here's what the psalmist now does for you, does for me. As a result of those fourfold names, he's able to say, for he will deliver you. And now he's offering a testimony so it will minister to your heart and mind deliver you, and now notice with me the various metaphors. From the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. Could this be Moses writing? He saw it firsthand in, in Egypt. But then again, is this David writing? He saw it among the Philistines when they tried to seize the ark. But then, as you continue reading here and you're noticing the various challenges of life where you move from who God is to what God does, he's saying he delivers us from the snare of the trapper, the fowler. And the word deliver here is an interesting one. It means to snatch away. In other words, though the follower was attempting to snatch away a bit, what God is saying is that I will snatch you away from the follower. And furthermore, from the deadly pestilence, which again, is this Moses? Is this David speaking? You get the impression now that this Man is standing outside as he's penning his thoughts of Psalm 91, and maybe he sees what's happening in the environment around him. And he's looking at the birds. And then he adds this thought, inspired by God. He will cover you with his pinions, in other words, under his wings. So now the metaphor here is, Picturing God as this immense bird keeping close watch over the brood. Why, in Psalm 36, verse 7, it speaks of the protection we have under our Lord's wings. But then he adds still more. He moves then from the environment to the battlefield, and his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And what fascinates me, when you look into the military equipment from that time period, the shield was something large, the buckler something small, the shield something static, the buckler something flexible, 
fluid. Allowing for this dual aspect to help a soldier on the battlefield of life to maneuver effectively. And now what God is saying, I am equipping you, my storm victim children. I'm equipping you for the battles of life, day by day, week by week, year by year. But then again, this equipment is for dwellers only. Are you a dweller? Now, once you've made your way out of verses 1 through 4 and the various names, four names we spotted in 1 and 2, and we started with who God is before we got to what God does in verses 3 and 4, we're into now the second of the four assurances where as we find our dwelling in our sovereign God, note not only the various names describing our God, but number two, the secure refuge provided by God. And so what does he do? He wants to create a healthy tension between fear and faith. Faith and fear. You've got to answer the question, which will be the dominating factor of my life? The faith factor or the fear factor? Fear immobilizes. Faith mobilizes. Are you mobile? Or have the storms of life immobilized you? Make it temporal. Your residence is meant to be in God, not in this world. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor, nor the arrow that flies by day. He's got a night and day contrast developing here. And you say, but Gary, what about midday? Hmm. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Back to the battlefield. Life's a battle. This is a battleground, not a playground. And we need to understand the significance of that and understand the distinction of them. And so here you have now in verse 7 words that stand out. Picture the battle. Is this David or maybe Moses? A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. Why, the women among the Philistines would sing songs of David in that regard. But it will not come near you. My father's side are Scandinavian. It was said among the Swedes you could marshal a force which had a proportion to their enemies of 20 to 100, and they never despaired of victory. In France, when Napoleon started to fight England and Austria, the soldiers called him, quote, we 100,000 men, 
unquote. They would ask one another during battles, is we 100,000 men in the army today? Because in their estimation, Napoleon was worth that many number of men. But we tie this, you see, to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? So now think about everything that has stood against you over the course of these weeks, these months, these years. Answer that question. If God be for us, who can be against us? It's a question posed by dwellers. Dwellers in God. You're able to answer that question. Because then he goes on at this point to say you only look you only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. He's got a reason flowing out of verses 9 and 10 for being able to say this. Because you have made the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, same Lord mentioned in verse 2. Now connect verse 2 with verse 9. You have made the Lord your dwelling place. But furthermore, not wanting to skip a beat, the Most High, taking you back to verse 1. In other words, now he is taking the names of God in 1 and 2 and connecting them to the refuge you need as a storm victim in verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, your house is not your dwelling place. This earth is not your dwelling place. The Most High who is my refuge, when all other refuges are destroyed. Here's what he has to say. When you are dwelling in God, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. And no plague come near your tent. Both Moses and David could attest to that. And this is what would bring comfort to a Casper Ten Boom who is meditating on that February 28, 1944 day when the Nazis take him and his family members away for hiding Jews, they had called their home the shelter. And they had embraced the idea of abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. And that's why now his son can see such, his grandson can see such peace on the face of his grandfather, that though everything seems to be going wrong, his refuge is in God. And he's finding peace in adversarial times. You ready for a third one? Because it's flowing naturally now out of verses 11 and down through verse 13. We've talked, number one, about the various names 
describing our God in 1 through 4, the secure refuge provided by God in 5 through 10. But now thirdly, I want you to see the angelic presence commissioned by God in 11 through 13. I'm going to read it, and then we'll reflect upon it. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, not some of your ways. He's not done with these angels. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone you'll Tread on the lion and the otter, or the young lion and the serpent. You'll trample under underfoot. What to make of all this? Starting off in verse eleven, I spot another Hebrew word, zava. It's where he gives command. He issues a commission. It carries with the idea to appoint or to install. In other words, what God does is that he appoints, he installs angels to minister to dwellers, no matter where they are in their life journey. He goes on, and you're still in verse 11, to say, to guard you in all, not some of your ways. And the word God here, shakmak, carries with the idea to keep, to watch over, observe, preserve from the Hebrew. In other words, what God is now saying is that the angelic realm are overseers of God's dwellers. And so if you are in God, if you are starting with a verse one approach to life, and you are residing in him, having put faith and trust in Christ, there's the I-N, as Lord and Savior. Take these words to heart, and then look at family members, okay? And look at co-workers, and ponder what they need in terms of angelic protection in the midst of the challenges that are coming way. But first things first. And pray that they're dwelling in God. A couple of stories. And Dr. S.W. Mitchell, well-known neurologist in Philadelphia. After an incredibly tiring day, he went to bed a little earlier at night until he was awakened by a persistent knocking at the door. It was a little girl. Biographer tells us, poorly dressed, deeply upset. She told him that her mother was very sick, needed help, and though it was bitterly cold, snowy night, bone tired, he dressed, followed the girl, found the mother desperately ill with pneumonia. After treating her, Dr. Mitchell complimented the sick woman on her daughter's persistence and courage, and the woman gave him a strange look and said, (coughs) my daughter died a month ago. Her shoes and coat are in the closet there. Dr. Mitchell went to the closet, opened the door, and there hung the very coat worn by the little girl who had been out 
and at his front door, the coat was warm, dry, couldn't possibly have been out in the wintry night. Dr. Mitchell, who dwelled in God, wondered, was this an angelic appointment? This was the question that John Payton had asked as well. While he was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands, hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters, intent on burning the Paytons out, killing them. And Payton and his wife prayed, terror-stricken all that night, claiming Psalm 91. At dawn, they were amazed to see the attackers just turn and leave. And so a year later, the chief of that very tribe came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Peyton asked him what had kept him and his men from burning down the house and killing them that night, and the chief asked Peyton a question in return, quote, Who were all those men who were with you? Unquote. Peyton told him that they were just uh, he and his wife, but the chief insisted they had seen Hundreds of men standing guard, big men in shining garments with drawn swords. John Paytonus, ever seen an angel? But then the writer of Hebrews states, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. One more assurance for dwellers. Dwellers who are also storm victims. I want you to see, fourthly now, the specific promises given by God. And in verses 14 down to verse 16, there are six there are six I wills. Can you spot them? In verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love. The word hold fast here has to do with a permanent attachment. And so when you have chosen to be present with God in such an abiding way where the Holy Spirit has been operative leading you into that sense of ultimate refuge. Notice the six promises, the six I wills that come leaping out of these verses. Number one, I will protect him. Why, you ask? Answer, because he knows my name. In other words, you've been studying verse 1 and 2. Number 2. After saying, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. Number 3. He calls to me. And when he calls to me, I will answer him, God says to dwellers. Number four, I will be with him. 
in trouble. Number five, I will rescue him and honor him. And number six, with long life, I will satisfy him. And now you tie all this together and show him my salvation. Everybody's got a salvation plan in this world. But what we have to consider is God's salvation plan found at the cross, you see. The cross of Jesus Christ. It's 9-11. And when I look at these six promises, I smile when I think about what is taking place over the course of these three days leading up to and including uh, 9-11 today. There is what is known as the 9-11 Promise Run Organization. It's a nonprofit. Uh, Jan DePoto is the leader of it. She's determined to make absolutely certain that the runners maintain the sense of the promise first given to all those who lost their family members in 9-11 that we will not forget. And so the organization's 9-11 Promise Run is an annual three-day relay race which challenges participating teams to run 240 miles from the 9-11 Pentagon Memorial to ground zero. And through the course of the race, as they carry their flags, what they do is fulfill a promise made to all the family members who will make certain no one forgets. And this is what we want to be able to say to all the dwellers. Do not forget the promises of God. Pull all this together. Apply it to life today. Let's stand together. And it all begins, Father, with you. Shelter of the Most High, shadow of the Almighty, the Lord, my God. We start with who you are and then move to what you do. And in the process, remind ourselves if you can create something out of nothing, you can create something good out of something even very bad. So now I'm praying first service, second service, online involvement, and all those participating in worship at this moment and the hours and the days to come. For all those that are seeking shelter, may they first make absolutely certain they're dwelling in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then take the sum total of Psalm 91 like Mr. Ten Boom did and find extraordinary peace as we dwell in you and you alone. You are our zip code and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.